Hello. Welcome to the Myths and History of Ancient Greece. Chapter 26. No More Heroes. Ten years had passed since the end of the Trojan War. The age of heroes was nearly over. Most of the men who had been at the war were either dead or had returned to live peaceful lives. The gods on Olympus decided they would no longer meddle in the lives of men, and that men would now be normal men. There would be no more mortal children of the gods, no more mortals with special powers. There would be no more heroes. Our tale is not quite over, though. Two of the survivors of the war have not quite finished their adventures. Before we say goodbye to the heroes, we must find out what happened to Odysseus and Aeneas. We left Odysseus washed up on a shore which may or may not have been Ithaca. Before we find out if he has finally reached his home island, though, we will need to hear a little bit about what has been going on in Ithaca and what has been happening to Penelope and Telemachus. Everyone on Ithaca assumed that Odysseus was dead. When most of the surviving kings of Greece arrived at their homes, but Odysseus didn't, they all thought he'd joined Ajax, Achilles, Agamemnon and the rest in the underworld. Before too long, many of the rich noble men of Ithaca tried to persuade Penelope to marry them, and there were a lot of them. Penelope had 112 suitors. The Queen of Ithaca didn't want to marry any of them. She loved Odysseus and was determined, even if he was dead, that she wouldn't marry anybody else. First she told the 112 suitors that Odysseus must be alive, because an oracle had predicted he would return some day. Once seven years had passed, though, nobody believed this any more, so Penelope had to find another reason. She told the suitors she had to weave a burial shroud for Laertes, Odysseus's father, who was very old. For three years she carefully wove the shroud during the day so they could see her working. Every night she unpicked it and it never became close to being completed. For the whole of the three years the 112 suitors turned up at the palace every day, drank Odysseus's wine, slaughtered his pigs and sheep and ate his food. At the end of the three years they discovered what Penelope had been doing and demanded she should choose who she should marry. Odysseus had been gone for twenty years. He was not coming back. Penelope begged for a few weeks to decide which of them to marry. They agreed, but time was running out. Telemachus promised to help his poor mother, and he went off on a trip to find a wise man to tell him what he should do. He travelled to see King Nestor. The wise Argonaut, by now very, very old, told him of his father's glorious deeds at Troy. He told him that Odysseus had definitely been alive at the end of the war and had begun to journey home. Telemachus then travelled to Sparta, where he was welcomed by Menelaus and Helen. They told him more stories about the greatness of Odysseus. They said he was definitely alive the last time they saw him. He had turned back to Troy for a second go at sailing home. Lovely though it was to hear about his father's greatness, none of this was much use to Telemachus. He still didn't know whether Odysseus was alive or dead. Time was running out. In only a few days, poor Penelope would have to choose which of the suitors to marry. He was beginning to despair when Athena appeared to him. Your father is alive, she said. Go back now to Ithaca. There he will be revealed to you. Telemachus sailed to Ithaca excitedly. So, back to Odysseus. As he rubbed his eyes and looked into the mist, he saw a figure approaching. It was Athena. She told the hero of Troy about the suitors and advised him to be careful. Every one of the suitors would not hesitate to kill him if they found out who he was. He would need a plan. Athena changed his appearance so that he looked like a scruffy beggar and then guided him to the hut of a pig-keeper called Eumaeus.
Yemaos was a loyal supporter of Odysseus, but of course he didn't know that this scruffy beggar was the king of Ithaca. He let the beggar into his house and listened to him. Odysseus told the pig keeper a huge pack of lies, convincing him he was a king from Crete who had fought at Troy. He told Eumaeus that he knew for a fact that Odysseus was alive. Before long, Eumaeus had another unexpected visitor. A young man strode into his hut. You have to help me, the young man said. The suitors will surely kill me if they see me. They have run out of patience with my mother. Athena appeared to me and told me that you are the only person I can trust. My father is alive and I must still be alive when he arrives home. Telemachus hardly noticed the scruffy beggar in the corner. He may not have noticed him at all, but Eumaeus had to go out for a few minutes, and when the pig-keeper left, the beggar stepped forward. For a moment, Athena let him return to his usual form. Telemachus saw the change and some inkling of recognition pass through his brain. He had been a baby when Odysseus left, so he didn't actually recognise him, but something inside him knew who this man was. Odysseus smiled. "'I am your father.' he said. Telemachus knew he was telling the truth. They both wept with joy. Then they began to plan. Happy with the plan, Telemachus went home. By the time Eumaeus returned, Odysseus was a scruffy beggar again. Eumaeus offered the beggar a bed for the night, and Odysseus gratefully accepted. When morning came, they made their way to the palace of the king of Ithaca. As they approached the palace, they went past Odysseus's dog, Argus, He had been a young dog when the king left for Troy. Now he was old and weak. He knew that it was Odysseus, and he leapt up and wagged his tail. The old dog licked the beggar and then fell dead, happy that he had seen his old master one last time. Odysseus walked into his own palace. He was appalled by what he saw. The suitors, all 112 of them, were feasting in his banqueting hall. They were laughing and joking and throwing food at each other. They argued about who would marry Penelope, and then ate and drank, and ate and drank some more. Odysseus, still disguised as a beggar, went among them and begged for money. They all gave him food, except for their leader, an awful man named Antinous. He hurled a stool at the beggar and told him to get lost. He then forced Odysseus to fight another beggar for his amusement. Odysseus, of course, won the fight easily. Then, without warning, Penelope arrived. Odysseus couldn't believe that after all these years he was again looking at his wife. He knew he couldn't let her know who he was just yet, and he cried inside. On the outside, though, he still just looked like a mucky, scruffy beggar. Penelope announced that she would tell the suitors which one she was going to marry. She would let them know the next morning, but they must all leave magnificent bridal gifts. The suitors did as they were told. Telemachus told the suitors to return to their own homes and come back the following day. Again, the suitors did as they were told. Odysseus was highly impressed and very pleased. Not only did his wife clearly not want to marry anyone else and was putting them off, she had also managed to get a whole load of lovely gifts from them. Odysseus, who was pretty good at gaining treasure by tricking people, smiled to himself. When all of the suitors had gone... Telemachus brought him to speak to Penelope. Of course, she didn't recognise him, but they had a nice chat. Odysseus told her the same big steaming fib that he told to Eumaeus. He said he was from Crete. He also said that he knew Odysseus was alive. Penelope was overjoyed, even though she wasn't totally sure it was true. 
she told the beggar about her clever tricks, which had delayed her having to marry one of the suitors. While they were talking, Telemachus took all of the spears which hung on the walls of the banqueting hall. He stashed them in a secret place. The plan was ready. There was nearly a problem when Odysseus was recognised by his old nurse, who saw a familiar scar on his leg. Fortunately, Odysseus just managed to stop her shouting out, and she agreed to keep quiet. The next morning came, bright and sunny. The 112 suitors arrived at the palace and sat in the banqueting hall. They waited, not very patiently, to find out who would be chosen to marry the Queen of Ithaca. After a few minutes, Penelope stepped into the room. There was complete quiet in the hall as she began to speak. Gentlemen, she began, it is time for me to marry and for the next king of Ithaca to rule. My husband Odysseus must be dead. When he ruled here on Ithaca, he owned a great bow. I will marry the man who can string the bow and fire an arrow through the rings in the handles of these twelve axes. She pointed at twelve axes in a line, all the rings lined up. The suitors all jumped up. They bickered over who would go first. In the end it didn't matter. Not one of them could even string the bow, let alone fire an arrow through the axe rings. When they'd all had a go, the old beggar stepped forward. In a few seconds he had strung the bow. A couple of moments later he fired an arrow, straight and true. It sailed across the hall and through all twelve axe rings. The beggar turned to face the suitors and raised his arm in triumph. There was uproar. Then there was pandemonium. Then there was uproarious pandemonium. Then there was fear. Odysseus threw off the beggar's rags and changed to his usual form. Then he lifted the bow again and shot Antinous through the throat. He fell down dead. Then, just as planned, Telemachus charged into the hall, armed with spears and a massive sword. Odysseus used up all of his arrows, shooting the men who had tried to take his place. The surviving suitors ran to the walls of the hall, where they knew they would find spears. Of course, they found nothing. Telemachus had taken them all away. Odysseus's son joined in the slaughter, and so did two faithful servants. It was four against 112, but the four had weapons and the 112 didn't. Before long, all of the suitors were dead. Odysseus went to the bathroom of his palace, then he put on fine clothes and went to see Penelope. Penelope examined him closely. The man standing before her looked like Odysseus. The man standing before her sounded like Odysseus. The man standing before her smelled like Odysseus. But poor Penelope couldn't quite believe it. She still wasn't sure it really was her husband. Just to be sure, she asked him to describe their bedroom. He told her the bed was constructed around the roots of an old olive tree. At last, Penelope knew her husband was home. They had a massive hug and they both wept with joy. Odysseus went to see his father. Laertes was overjoyed to see his son once again. All was well. Odysseus agreed a truce with the families of the suitors and then went on a journey. He wandered as far from the sea as it was possible to go, carrying an oar. When he reached a place so far from the water the people did not know what an oar was for, he planted the oar in the ground. Then he made a sacrifice to Poseidon. The great Olympian, god of the sea, forgave him at last. When Odysseus returned home, he lived a long and happy life with his beloved Penelope. After this, there were no more heroes. Eventually, Nestor, Menelaus, Diomedes, Odysseus, 
and the other Greek heroes of Troy died. It is said they were succeeded by their sons, and their families continued to rule. In Crete and Athens, the families of Minos and Theseus also continued to rule. As myth turned into history, some of the early kings of Greece would claim to be descended from these mythical heroes. So now, we have heard about the last of the Greek heroes. What about the last Trojan? As we heard, Aeneas never managed to build his city. He knew, though, where it was supposed to be built. It was to be built where he saw the white sow and its thirty piglets. Before he died, Aeneas made his son, Ascanius, promise to build the city, and build it he did. Thirty years after Aeneas arrived in Italy, the new city was founded. It was called Alba Longa. Ascanius ruled as its king, and his son ruled after him. For eleven generations, each king of the city was the son of the previous king. On the death of the eleventh king, Proca, though, there was conflict over who would be next. Two sons of Proca, Numitor and Amulius, fought over the right to rule. Amulius came out on top, and he banished his brother. He also imprisoned Numitor's daughter, Rhea Silvia, and refused to let her marry so that she could not have any children. The war god Ares, though, slipped down from Olympus and went to see Rhea Silvia, persuading her to become his girlfriend. A few months later, she gave birth to twins. The twins were thrown into the river Tiber by Ascanius, but they were rescued by Ares and placed into a basket. They floated down the river until they came to rest under a fig tree. There they were rescued by a wolf who heard babies crying. The wolf rescued the babies and fed them until they were found by the royal shepherd, Faustulus. He realised who they were and took them home. They were brought up by the shepherd and his wife. The twins grew up into fine young men. They were brave and strong, and soon came to the attention of the banished Numitor. He guessed they were his grandsons, and Faustulus confirmed that they were. Together, Numitor and his grandsons overthrew Amulius, and Numitor became king of Alba Longa once more. The two brothers decided they should found their own city, near to where they were discovered by the wolf. They agreed on a site near the Tiber, but argued over who would be king. In the end, one of them, who was called Remus, was killed in the fighting, and the other, named Romulus, was left to found the city. The city was given the name Rome. The people who lived in the city were called Romans, and they saw themselves as the descendants of the Trojans and the favourites of the gods. Rome became the centre of the most powerful empire in the ancient world, an empire which lasted nearly 2,000 years. In the next few chapters, we will find out about the history of the Greeks. We will learn about the rise and the development of their great civilization, and we will see how it eventually came to be conquered by those descendants of the Trojans, the Romans. So I hope you will continue to join me as we journey, beginning next week, through the history of ancient Greece. Until then, have a great week, and I'll speak to you next time.